0: Welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Hi everybody I am doing a live on eating today and I hope that my sound is better than last time Um, but something happened with my son this weekend that made me think about how far we have come with eating at the same time from the outside looking in he doesn't eat that well at all so I have five things to help you think about how to approach eating with your PDA child, especially if this is their stickiest basic need. And we'll talk about that. Um, But first I just wanna tell you sort of where we started in burnout and then where we are now, and then I'll get into the tips. So when my son reached burnout, he was four and a half years old and he he had never been a great eater, but he had never been like, an eater to the point where I was worried about nutritional intake. Um, He was breastfed for a year. I made all organic foods, you know, all the things I was, I did baby led weaning, I read all the books, but increasingly as his pickiness increased, I got increasingly anxious. And as we know, PDA kids perceive our energy and our intent to make them eat things. But at the same time, I also doubled down on my traditional parenting and behavioral techniques of like, you have to sit at the table until you eat X, Y, and Z. And so this coincided with burnout. And at his lowest point, he was really only eating one thing at a time, not enough of it to sustain caloric intake. And we were concerned about like nutritional health and growth. And this was really also apparent when we moved from Washington, D.C. to to Michigan. Um, and at that point, he was only eating um, honey nut Cheerios out of a particular bowl. And I remember him throwing them in my mom's face when they were delivered to him in a bowl that wasn't the one he wanted. So I was obviously incredibly anxious. I didn't know about PDA at the time and just did not understand why he wasn't eating. At the time, we were working through a sensory lens. Flash forward three and a half years later, and eating is still his stickiest basic need. And what I mean by that is it's the one that it's hardest to get traction on in terms of him eating a broad array of things. Um, sometimes he struggles a little bit with sleep, but eating is really where the control coalesces when he's having a hard time. Right now, he usually fluctuates or between around five to six preferred foods. And right now those foods are um, popcorn, pirates, booty, Lay's potato chips, Doritos. He does eat granola bars in his um, backpack, but And here's where the progress is. And I'm going to talk about how we get here. He has developed an awareness of why we eat food and does not have the same resistance to it or trauma around it. And this weekend, you know, he was talking to me about drinking milk with hot chocolate um, powder in it. And I brought up the topic of collagen peptides, which I used to like try and mix a bunch of things into his drinks um, so that he would get protein or vitamins and he would always sense it. But I said, you know, do you remember the collagen peptides? I wonder if you would feel ready to put a t- tiny bit in because you're trying to build muscles now and you want to be strong for ninja class. And he was like, yeah, let's try it. Um, and he also asks for steak and sometimes like Culver's chicken nuggets. And I know these aren't like he's eating an array of a million vegetables and we're having green smoothies. Like, of course, that's not like success in my world. But I do feel heartened that he's taking on the responsibility for his eating more and more. And it's not a point of these like horrific power struggles. So I want, if this sounds like success to you, which if you have a neurotypical kid, you're going to be like, how is that success? He eats potato chips. Like, why are you talking to me? However, I trust that you are the right audience for this. Um, but how I want to help you get to a place where you're more at peace and not constantly anxious about your child's consumption of food um, is to talk about five things. And this is going to be unique to your child. But the first pattern that I notice with working with hundreds of families is that especially when a child is in burnout or when they have um, when they're approaching their threshold of tolerance, whether it's in a week or a day, that they have one sticky basic need that's most impacted. Okay, so you know we have the basic needs: hygiene, eating, toileting, sleep, and often in burnout, all four of those are impacted our the nervous system of our children um, will disable them from accessing those basic needs. but uh, for our family it was eating, right? He did have some struggles with some toileting and and sleeping, but it wasn't this moving into a 24 hour sleep cycle or needing to use diapers again. So that's the first thing I want you to think about is whether or not eating is the sticky basic need or where control coalesces for your child, because the way that you approach supporting them has to reflect that. If it is their stickiest basic need, we really need to be careful and manage our energy even more around that because The pattern in terms of like looking at indicators of coming out of burnout and improving is really going to reflect whether or not it's their sticky basic needs. So for eating for my family, that's like the last one that we still sort of look very atypical from the outside with, if that makes sense. Um, And if it's just something they struggle with, then we can be we don't have to be quite as careful about emphasizing it. I hope that's making sense. So reflect for yourself, like when my child is having their hardest time or when they were in burnout, what is the one basic need where you saw the most struggles? Okay, and feel free to drop it in the chat or if you're listening to this as a podcast episode, just you know say it out loud to yourself, your partner, or think about it. Okay, so the point here is just recognizing whether it's the stickiest and if it is, really letting go even more around it. The second thing to think about, and I know that this is, you know, it's it's definitely a component piece of the experience. It's the sensory experience. However, so often when we're working with therapists, or even when we're initially working through the sensory processing lens, we infer that all of their struggles with food are based on you know their sight their smell what the food look like looks like tastes like feels like and feels like in their mouth and th- and therefore we work with them through a sensory lens but the key here is that a lot of the protocols and even supports for sensory processing dis- processing disorder if they're not applied with autonomy and nervous system accommodations and a PDA lens, they can actually backfire and make it harder for your child to eat. And so that's not to say you should not have your child in occupational therapy or that you shouldn't be approaching food and eating with medical professionals and therapists. It's just to say that, and I'm going to talk about this, we need to have some accommodations that really account for the main mechanism. Which is that your child's brain perceives threat every time it perceives a loss of autonomy or equality to those around them. Thank you for all the waves. You guys are so supportive. Love it. Um, so in terms of like what we can do in implementation, the first thing I would say, and this applies to you, your partner, um, your parents or in-laws, if they're around when eating is taking place and therapists working with the child, which is to manage your own anxiety. Oh, hey, mom. (laughs) Hey, mom. My mom just joined the live, so I'm saying hi. Um, Is to manage your own energy around it because it is very easy as a parent to drop into severe anxiety and like sort of this impatient energy of like, we have to solve this right now, this is a basic need. And I know that all of you have felt this, whether it's like your child is not sleeping, your child is not eating, right? Like your natural instinct as a mother or father or someone who loves the PDA child is going to be like, shit, I need to fix this right now because it's gonna impact their well-being." But paradoxically, like one of the major things we can do is just like try as hard as we can to model for our child that we've got this and that like it's okay, right? Because we need to we need to sort of like dance on that edge of letting go, but also signaling to them that like we're going to figure this out and I'm in control here, not control in the sense of like I'm the authority, but just like you're going to guide them through. Someone just said the, it's not just sensory is a massive light bulb moment. Yes. No, for me, too. I spent like a year and a half just working through the sensory lens. And so often these wonderful sensory accommodations that can really help our children backfired or degraded trust between us because I wasn't allowing there to be autonomy within the sensory accommodation. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um so the more... So when I work with parents in a coaching container or in a, in a package that's more intimate, sometimes we work on this letting go practice or managing our anxiety like one day at a time, right? Because our we have brains that go from zero to 100. We catastrophize. And so I'm never going to say to a parent, like, just don't worry about the fact that your child's not eating. But rather, can we in the moment for the next two days let go can we just not worry about it for two days right and then we like reflect after two days and then we work again to see if we can stay in the moment because remember that they they sense and perceive the way that you feel about it okay and the more you're trying to make them do something the less likely it's gonna happen (laughs) the fourth thing i want to talk about is just like the accommodations that i always talk about on this page but want to show how we would apply them to an eating scenario okay so the first one is obviously autonomy freedom and choice okay so this can be applied to where your child eats how your child eats uh what they eat and you know what they're doing when they eat i know that there's trade-offs because like personally i let my son eat when he needs and he eats on the couch and i always have crumbs in my house and it's a lot of work for me, right? But the benefit of him actually being able to consume food outweighs the cost of a really messy living room. But you have to see the causality there or else you're not going to make that decision. Um, The next is incorporating offerings or strewing. So this is just like a visual or sensory cue that something is there that they can engage with or not. This is from the homeschooling literature, Sandra Dodd. It can be very helpful to not say anything at all and just leave out a buffet of choices. Always preferred foods nearby them, like when they're watching an iPad or when they're doing Legos, right? So it doesn't have to be a meal time. It can just be, I'm going to put out six choices and set it next to them without saying anything okay and this is something that i still do especially when my son is struggling more so let me just give you context for example my younger son's fourth birthday was on monday right and birthdays are obviously hard for pda kids because there's that automatic sensation that their sibling or another kid is above them which sets off the threat response in addition to that my now almost eight year old PDA son is, has decided he's ready to get rid of his pacifier because at home, this is an oral regulation tool that he uses and I allow it to regulate himself. And so he has decided, I know it's like such a big deal. I gave up on it three years ago and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, he's actually ready. And the reason is because he wants to, um, to a sleepover with one of his friends so he's really working on it but he's irritable just like you would be if you're quitting smoking or something so where I see this also playing out not just in his behavior is in his eating right so this morning he was having more trouble starting his meal starting to eat his chips take his medication etc and so I applied the strategy of a buffet right? Just bringing him a bunch of things so she, he doesn't have the demand of of even articulating what it is he wants. Additionally, I offered like, which we do sometimes when we can see he's peaked is like, you can eat a treat before you start eating. Maybe that's what venom, which is what he calls his threat response would like to get your body ready to eat totally counterintuitive as a parent. Okay. But th- remember, we're just working to deescalate or preempt that threat response, which gets in the way of our child eating. Using declarative language. I always err on the side of not using a lot of spoken language, but hi guys. <laughs> um, yes. I see someone talking about tendency to overeat. So I don't, I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm talking about like kids not eating because it's two different things. So what you can use the next accommodation, which is the declarative language, right? Which is saying, I'm noticing, or I wonder, or you can, or I can, right? So when my son's like, I can't eat, I say, I can do this. I can go get you some popcorn. I can get you a glass of water instead of saying, do you want a glass of water, right? Because that direct question will immediately have his brain perceive a loss of autonomy equality to me threat and we're escalating right we're either activating or accommodating the next pattern which has been so interesting for his occupational therapist to see and for me as well to learn from her is just the Having those preferred foods that are very common in autistic children, and I've actually done some coaching with an autistic adult around this to understand it, um, but that the PDA kids, they often add in a preferred food, and then after a period of time, whether it's weeks or months, they drop a food, a preferred food, all of a sudden, which is why If you're anything like my family you don't buy in bulk because for so long it'd be like okay i'm gonna buy like boxes and boxes from costco of pirates booty and then he'd decide i don't like it anymore right so you know just using that to your advantage of the novelty right they're the preferred foods but also understanding like it's going to become an internal demand eventually and that's okay it can come back but when we were working with an occupational therapist who specializes in eating my son's been in feeding therapy for three and a half years and i'll talk about that in the last point which is on therapy um it was a very confusing pattern to her and part of why she started to recognize that my son was different than other neurodivergent children she worked with because when they would work through a play and sensory model and a child would add a food in, it would be an expansion of the total amount of foods. But with my son, he would add something and then drop another and it would always hover at the same amount. And so that's a pattern she also sees when she works with other PDA kids. So that's something to keep in mind and just know that like it's typical of these kids right it doesn't mean they're never going to eat it again but we allow them to drop and you can use it to your advantage to introduce new things um, that will sort of override that threat response and then yeah so those are the accommodations i would suggest like if you want to share i'm going to put this into the podcast so if you want to share this with your um occupational therapist to introduce sort of these accommodations if you are working on feeding therapy. And the final point is therapy, right? So there's two main types of therapy that I'm aware of for eating, of two variations. One is like the more behavioral approach. And the other is the more play-based exposure approach. We work with the SOS protocol, which has 32 steps towards eating. So like the first step is just being in the same room as something like broccoli. And then will like the kid will put it on their nose and drop it into a bowl and th- their forehead and their lips and spit it into the bowl and eventually might eat it and swallow it. But there's 32 steps between being in the room with a food and having it go into your mouth. Okay. So it's a very gradual exp- exposure based approach. It's very, um, it's very play oriented. Like the first time we did it, we used like hammers and smashed the food and we made art with it and we spit things and, you know. But even though it was play based and exposure based, it was still not giving my son enough autonomy in order to make it successful. And so like any therapy that you you do, even if you're working with a professional, it has to be adapted to a PDA child. And so what we did, we dropped the home protocol because that was too stressful of like having him try things and be exposed to them at home. We allowed him to have a preferred food throughout. So he he munches on like, he'll have a Twix bar when he first gets there, he can get up and down and like search foods in the refrigerator instead of needing to sit, he, he can decide not to do food school. We call it food school. Um, some days he decides to, he decides when he's going to do it in the middle of the OT session, he'll say, let's do food school and we'll do it. Um, and he'll munch on and he'll munch on Cheez-Its in between the exposure foods, which gives him a sense of control. Right. So it's not like, okay, you had your cheese. It's now we need to move on to the other foods. And these are subtle things in addition to like the therapist managing their energy, not having an agenda, allowing it to be fluid, using declarative language, all the things, but actually, um, altering some of the protocol itself. And obviously you need to have a therapist who is willing, To have a curiosity mindset and be open to learning about pda but they can make a ton of traction oh my gosh hi christy i just saw one of my best friends from childhood on here so fun so fun okay so like any other therapy there's no like therapy is bad therapy is good it just needs to be it needs to be adjusted for our kids. And because there isn't like a huge awareness of PDA, um, you might be, you will be the one who needs to educate the therapist in order to apply this in a way that's supportive of your child. So I'm so happy to be here with you guys. I hope that was helpful to get you some more clarity on how to support your child with eating. I'm taking a note of the person who asked about overeating and I will think about that. I actually haven't worked closely with any coaching clients who had that issue. Um, Let me think about it. Okay. That's all for today. It was so nice to see you guys. Thanks for your waves. Um, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye from Michigan. Thanks, everyone, for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses on my website, www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program. Enrollment is now open until January 11, 2023.